0: again late Yeah. BC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world, and guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources. double-crossing dames, two-bit heels, cold-blooded killers. That's right, the feverish, fatalistic world of film noir returns to the cinema Tech for another angst-filled August. This year's season features 12 hard-boiled classics, including The Blue Dahlia, Laura, *Pickup on Salsbury*, Street, and DOA. Don't miss the opening night on Friday, August 7th, with live music, a special introduction, and screenings of favorites This Gun for Hire and Gilda. All ages welcome, 1131 House Street. For more info, visit cinematech.ca.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening world. Thanks for joining us today at CITR 101.9 FM. You have now landed at this week's Arts Report. Jake, unfortunately, is on vacation. He's out of town, so the job to pick up the slack here is taken on by myself, Jacob, and Andy over here. Hi. How are you doing, Andy? I'm doing good. Yeah, we've got a exciting and jam-packed show for you guys today. We're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on at the Vancouver Art Gallery. There are actually five exhibits ongoing there right now. That, that must be some kind of record. Lots of exciting stuff there. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, King Lear and Bard on the Beach. Um, Andy had a chance to attend that show, and he's going to give us a little bit of a review, share some thoughts on that. We'll get into that. And then uh, I will be speaking about Collect Call, an indie rock band uh, formed out of White Rock, British Columbia, just, uh, I think, maybe 35 kilometers out of the heart of Vancouver. So we'll get into that. And then we'll talk about some of the events that are going on. Summer's winding down, but the city is just busy as ever. So we have lots to talk about today. So um, let's get into some of this uh, art gallery stuff.
2: Art gallery stuff. So you went to art gallery. When was this? Last week?
1: Uh, I actually went a couple of days ago. What day is it today? It's Wednesday. I think I went on uh, No, I actually went yesterday. Wow. Oh, yeah? Every day is kind of blurring together. But yeah, there's like I said, there are five different exhibits on display at the Vancouver Art Gallery right now. And I'll just give a bit of a rundown on the five different kinds. We'll just we'll give a bit there, of a yeah. review. Yeah. It. So the first is entitled The Material Future, The Architecture of Herzog and Demiron. Uh, and the Vancouver Gallery of Art. So this exhibit showcases several things. Firstly, it details the history of the Vancouver Art Gallery, so how the building has transformed over time and how it has become much more of an attraction in this thriving city in the Pacific Northwest. As we all know, the Art Gallery will be actually moving to a new location and it will be entirely redesigned and reconstructed uh, by the year 2021 by the European architecture firm Herzog & Meuron. So it comes with no surprise that the second purpose of this exhibit is to showcase the various projects that this firm has undertaken in the past. In this way, the exhibit is able to not only kind of recount the history of what was and is the Vancouver Art Gallery in its present form, but it's also going to provide a bit of a glimpse into its exciting future. Now, um, the second exhibit, which is actually located on the first floor as well, it's just separated kind of like the west and east wing. So on the east wing is the exhibit entitled Of Heaven and Earth, 500 years of Italian painting from Glasgow Museums. So the installation is organized in chronological order, working its way from the early 13th century Italian Gothic Epoch artwork, to the more realist pieces of the 19th century. The paintings were uh, actually very suitably selected. Each uh, uh, section of the exhibit captures the essence of the time. Whether it was the rich religious themes and imagery of the Gothic era or the chaos that was captured by paintings created at the time of the outbreak of the Black Plague. Another section uh, managed to relay the glory of the Renaissance uh, with beautiful selections from the likes of Botticelli. The exhibit is very concise and it just has selections um, from uh, a handful of selections uh, from each time period. And it is able to clearly display not only the evolution, but truly the revolution. Of uh, Italian and European art from the 13th to 19th centuries. Now, the third exhibit uh, marks a departure from this kind of classic oil paintings that uh, that were seen or that can be seen in the Heaven and Earth exhibit, as this particular installation transports the audience into the more contemporary artistic world that is Joffrey or Jeffrey Farmer's imagination. This is an honest and intimate exhibit. And it really probes into the consciousness of individuals and challenges not only our understanding of the people around us, but it really challenges how we perceive our, ourselves as well, as well. And so, included in the exhibits are sort of intimate little um, things like uh, these post-it notes that Mr. Farmer actually wrote to people that he observed on public transit, and he never really gave it gave these post-it notes to the people, but just kind of this. Um, stream of consciousness, of thoughts, just put onto these post-it notes. So I thought that was very intimate. Um, The exhibit is really uh, comprised of uh, multimedia pieces. So there are sculptures that are erected from cut-out magazine covers, styrofoam, paper mache, and other fabrics. Uh, There are photos and household objects. And what's really noticeable about this exhibit is that it's quite jarring. It's cluttered and it really lacks order. And I can see how that would be off-putting for a lot of people but i think that through this mr farmer is truly kind of trying to reveal the nature of the human mind he's trying to trying to show that the human spirit or the way that our mind works that almost resembles entropy so organized chaos
2: yeah like that third exhibit sounds sounds fascinating is there anything like you would say was a was a highlight
1: i don't know i think the the entire thing was just completely different from that coming out of that Italian Renaissance uh, or the Italian uh, traditional paintings. It was just so different. You step into this kind of chaotic world. But for me, there was actually one, now that I think of it, uh, one particular installation that really kind of moved me. And um, this particular part of the exhibit had a massive truck that was parked in the middle of one of the rooms. Now, this isn't a pickup truck or a towing truck. No, it's a full-size truck, like one of the ones that you'd see pulling up to a Safeway and unloading hundreds of products into the delivery area. Now, why was this truck there? Uh, one of the explanations that was given at the gallery is that at a certain point in time, the artist, Geoffrey Farmer, became obsessed with trucks. It got to the point where he actually wanted to make an installation of a truck at one of his art shows, which obviously happened. One night, he was having a dream, and he remembered a repressed memory from long, long ago, He remembered seeing a lady get hit by a truck of this kind and seeing her flattened body under the wheels of the towering vehicle. He also remembered the rolling and scattered contents of the lady's grocery bag at the scene of the incident. To me, this was just so kind of awe-inspiring and just kind of raw. It, It doesn't get much more intimate than that. I mean, that's really called facing your fear. He kind of recreated this traumatizing event for his art show and put that vulnerability and fear on display for the audience and I thought that was probably the highlight of the, that exhibit for me. Now, um, there, was, there are a couple more. Uh, the fourth exhibit was entitled uh, Residue, the Persistence of the Real, and it is an exploration as to what realist imagery really means. Now, as explained at the Art Gallery, realist art has always been sort of the subject of great scorn, as it claims to be able to reveal the full truth of, or situation of the objects that it depicts. So let me give you guys an example. I mean, if you take a uh, look at a, a realist photograph, so let's say a black and white photograph of a factory, it's called realist imagery because it kind of creates an actual setting. There isn't much imagination there, just how the thing is at its face value, the factory. But is that really realism? Because does that photo sort of convey... The relationships between the factory workers there. It doesn't talk about how how much time and effort the factory workers have to put into their jobs, how much blood, sweat, and tears is left at that factory, mm-hmm. you know. So it is, So this kind of um, this particular exhibit wanted to kind of challenge uh, the notions of realism, and it featured contemporary works in photography and film from Canadian American artists such as uh, Mr. Robert Burley and Mr. Stan Douglas. Now, the fifth and final exhibit was at the top floor of the art gallery, and it was called Beyond the Trees, Uh, Wallpapers and Dialogue with Emily Carr. So the way I understood it, the purpose of this installation was to capture sort of the grandiosity of British Columbia's coastal landscape. And by grandiosity, I mean, of course, like the towering pine, pine trees, the Rocky Mountains, stuff like that. And so the gallery was divided into two separate sections, the first curated by Wallpapers, which is an artistic outfit based out of Vancouver. So this part of the gallery was filled with digital animations and projections. They sprawled across the walls of the gallery rooms, trying to emulate the sheer size and towering nature of the trees and mountains of the Pacific Northwest. The second section of the installation features Emily Carr's landscape paintings, arranged in a much more traditional salon-style manner. So together, these two gallery rooms show the different ways of interpreting or maybe rather picturing the environment that surrounds us. One is very digital, it has sort of different animations that sprawl along walls and uh, stuff like that. And the other one with just paintings and paintbrush strokes and kind of the more traditional approach of uh, traditional art. So overall, I think that going to the art gallery right now is a must see for anyone who's interested in art or just wants to go out and do something fun on uh, any day this summer. And all the shows should be running um, through August, I think until early September, maybe with the exception of a couple. But there's definitely a wide variety of stuff to see at the Vancouver Art Gallery. So
2: Yeah, like that debate about um, realism in, in photography is fascinating. In literature as well, like there's this kind of criticism of, of, of realist fiction that, well, this is a really constructive thing. In real life, you don't really get to hear every thought that comes in a person's head, right? Exactly. A that. lot of it is... Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, overlap in, th- in that debate. Like, Do you think there's value, though, in, in realist photography
1: at all? I definitely think there is. I think that um, with any kind of artwork, you can interpret it in any way that you like. And it it's impossible to sort of capture a message that will resonate with every single person. So what I mean by that going back to the factory example is there really a way to paint uh, create a painting, paint a painting of a factory and all its workers in order to capture every single thing that transpires at that factory? No, it's not. If anything, I think that realist um uh artwork leaves the most room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. So I think that in itself makes it a very unique type of approach to art, genre of art. And I think that that kind of loose interpretation um, is a lot less constricting or, r- sure, r- yeah, you yeah. know, you know, what I'm getting at. So I definitely think that there is some there's definitely value in realist painting or realist art, right. or photography, film, whatever, whatever it may be.
2: Cool. Very cool. So this is the art art gallery. It's going to be
1: yeah. So it's at the Vancouver Art Gallery. All the shows are ongoing up until September. So make sure to check it out. So now we're just going to hear a bit of music from Collect Call, the band from White Rock, British Columbia. This song is called "A Home for the Winter," and it is off their twenty fourteen LP, "Spring Constant." There is much more music on the way from this wonderful indie rock band. So stay tuned for that, and take it away, Andy.
3: In my own bed. waking up to the time in my bones I've been spending the past months on my own. My green.
1: Such an infectious tune from Collect Call. That's uh, Home for the Winter, off of their 2014 LP, Spring Constant. Uh, make sure to check them out on SoundCloud or Bandcamp. That's Collect Call Music. And yeah, so Andy, I understand yes. that you had the chance to go check out King Lear at I Bart did. on the Beach. I
2: did. This, is, this review is a long time coming. We've long like, time coming, yeah. so yeah. saw two weeks ago with uh, with Mikey Harker, who is in Calgary right now, uh, and yeah, I saw it after the Arts Report. King Lear is, uh, I think both Mikey and I have said it's our favorite play. Favorite play, yeah. My favorite play. Certainly my favorite Shakespeare play. Yeah. Um, I think the first Shakespeare I really, really clicked with it right away. Yeah. You know, I read Romeo and Juliet, didn't care for it that much. I read Midsummer mm-hmm. Night's Dream, I read Macbeth, didn't really care for those either. I've gone back and I, I re- really like all of those now. Yeah. But King Lear right away was like, oh, this is Just this to, is in, yeah. what Shakespeare is all about. No. This is this
1: is the business, right? hmm yeah, so and so did it live up to that kind of huge expectation <laughs> that you built up for it in your mind?
2: Uh yeah, I, I think it mostly did. Yeah. Um it was my first time seeing a performance of it. Now for for those of you who don't know, uh King Lear is about an aging 80 year old-ish, I think that's the that's the age that, that mm-hmm. Shakespeare gives him in in the play, in the text. Uh in medieval pre-Christian England. Um there are a few ta- few references to to gods, uh, lowercase g and in plural. Mhm. Um and he, in the the instigating factor of of really the tragedy, is that he's decided to to retire essentially and to give up his kingdom, to uh, let his daughters and their husbands inherit the kingdom. He's going to split his kingdom into three, and in order to do this, he makes a whole show of it. He's like, "Hey, daughters, tell me which one of you loves me the most, and I will give you." Um, the kingdom, mm-hmm. the kingdom that it's really a show because he really decided beforehand which which parts. Of course, kingdom. yeah. He 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 decided to give his favorite daughter the best the best part. There's of the always kingdom. a favorite, <laughs> f- yes. And so the, the two older daughters, um, Goneril and reagan they they proclaim their undying love for their father, King Lear, and King Lear of course responds, well of course I'm I'm great. Here is your part of the kingdom. But when it comes to Cordelia, the youngest daughter, the, the fair daughter, the fairest daughter, um, she refuses to play King Lear's game, mm-hmm. and King Lear is enraged. He is mad. He is mad beyond belief. And he essentially kicks Cordelia out of the family. Um, she take He takes away her dowry, and the King of France, of course, being the King of France. He's very nice. He, he, he marries <laughs> her anyways, <laughs> even though she has no money. Um, and he... He exiles Kent his his loyal servant who who comments on how foolish King Lear is being king. in this moment, yeah. and really there's a way in which um King Lear has committed the ultimate sin of course in in doing this uh, in the fact in the fact of um his abdicating the throne, essentially divvying up the responsibility of being king mm-hmm. is of course the worst possible thing you could do in in uh, elizabethan england certainly because to be king was a divine right granted by mm-hmm. god and in doing so he's really really doing the worst thing possible so the punishment that comes after is unrelenting um you know he loses pretty much everything that last the last act of the play is probably one of the most bloody plays in shakespeare's uh entire the catalog catalog yeah, yeah. um but the special thing about King Lear is that it's not really a play with one story. It's it's two stories. And of course all of his plays really have subplots but mm-hmm. none of them Undoubtedly. to this extent. Um, so the other part of King Lear is of course the story of uh, the Earl of Gloucester and his two sons the illegitimate Edmund Edmund the Bastard and the legitimate Edgar. And they have a kind of parallel plotting and they intersect very closely towards the end. Um... And it's incredibly violent on that side, of course, as well. You do have Gloucester famously getting his eyes plucked out um, by w- by Goneril, I think, is is the sister who does it. Uh, and you have that famous scene where, like, the eye just plops on the ground and gets stepped on. Usually, it's a grape, and I think it well, was a grape in this production at Bar of the Beach as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Have you ever read any Shakespeare, Jacob?
1: Oh yes, no, certainly. Yeah, no, I've been reading Shakespeare. Since I was one years old. No, no, yeah, no, I've undoubtedly read it. No, I've yeah. read uh, King Lear a while, a while back. I mm-hmm. This year's sort of refreshing my memory right now, but I've yeah. re- definitely wanted to go check it out, and it sounds like it was a great show. So let's, uh, I just want to get a little bit more into the production side of it. Obviously, this is kind of one of Shakespeare's most grandiose plays. It is, And yes. it's got a lot of scenes, and like you talked about, the last uh, part of the play, the last act of the play is mm-hmm. quite bloody. And there's uh, lots of... Uh, Tying up of ends, if you will. Lots of denouement going on. So I was just wondering, in terms of the stagecraft and the setup and stuff like that, was it up to par? Like, were they able to sort of capture that entire intricate kingdom that Shakespeare wove together in this? Right,
2: yeah. Um, How should I say this? The first thing, of course, like anyone who's Mm -hmm. read King Lear will want to know is is how do they do the scene with the storm? Exactly. Right. It's fairly difficult, I think. The other... In Antony and Cleopatra, for example, there's that there's those famous huge battles, and that's unstageable basically. Like you need so many people, it's not feasible for any production company. And I think uh, the the storm scene in King Lear is described with such intensity in in the text. Mm-hmm. And what can you do in a stage production? You know, even in Shakespeare's time, but even today, right? And what they do is, I think, maybe a bit. Uh, it's hard to say. They use a, they use make great use of a smoke machine. Probably too much, I would say. (laughs) Too much? Too much smoke. It was really distracting. I could hear people going, oh, enough with the smoke or enough with the smoke. It's It's a lot. Um, But other than that, um, it's really an interesting kind of stage. It's very bare. Um, There's a ladder, like a very crickety ladder. It's Mm -hmm. very scary when you're watching. Um, (laughs) And other than that, like it's pretty bare bones, but with just enough like um, authenticity, I think you can... Kind of buy what they're kind of trying to sell.
1: Trying to sell. Yeah. And do you know if this is the first time that Barn on the Beach is doing King Lear?
2: Um, I think they haven't done it for for a while. For a while, yeah. yeah. They didn't do it last year, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, But yeah, it's...
1: Probably the first, probably the first time in a long time yep. because they, I, I yeah, think so, yeah. They try to rotate it out. Yeah, every, they do rotations.
2: Year. Um, they also, they also have the comedy of errors, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I think they have J- comedy Jig of errors. Reviewed that last, reviewed that a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, yeah, I yeah. remember
1: that. All right, well, I think you've definitely sold us. So, were there any kind of particular highlight scenes that kind of they really nailed?
2: There is, there is one. I'm not sure if they do it every time. But um, in the scene where Edmund is faking a battle with, with Edgar, he, he pricks himself with a sword, and the audience visibly gasped, you know, like they kind of cringed a little bit. Uh, you know, I guess it's the blood, but Edmund makes the, the actor who plays him I'm sorry, I don't know his name, he, he plays him. Um, and he kind of talks to the audience like a little bit. you know, I've, I've had worse, you know, like he kind of does a metatextual little thing which is i thought it was super fascinating i wonder if he does that every every week or every day actually semi soliloquy there yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah all right well thanks for that rundown on king Lear. make sure to check that out folks it's yeah. uh ongoing at bar on the beach i lasts think it's
2: until the september the 20th september
1: yeah. 20th all right that's perfect so uh we're gonna dive right back into some collect call this tune is called consequences and it again is off their 2014 album spring constant here we go
3: You don't know He's half of what you are You don't know He's half of what you are Does the one decide How you feel Does it What you let it mean in to your heart It hasn't changed at all from the start It's so hard to let go Why is it so hard to let go? You don't understand these consequences can You don't understand these Consequences You don't understand these Consequences
2: That music legend Neil Young and director Bernard Shakey are the same person. Get to know the other side of Neil Young's creative genius with the Bernard Shakey film retrospective at the Cinema Tech. The retrospective includes the Vancouver premiere of Human Highway,
1: Journey Through the Past, and Greendale, as well as films by friends Jim Jarmusch, Jonathan Demme, and Hal Ashby. July thirty-first to August tenth, eleven thirty-one
2: Howe Street. For more information, visit thecinematech.ca.
1: to the Arts Report, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in from wherever you are, on your phones, on your iPods, I don't know, on iPads. The on, on the
2: online web player. Shout-out to my friend Henry, who I learned designed that a few years ago.
1: Shout-out Henry for designing that. Um, welcome back, folks. So we've been listening to some tunes by a band named Collect Call. And so Collect Call is an indie rock band formed in White Rock, British Columbia. It consists of members Nick Bebe, Lazar Todorovic, and Tom Lee. All three were born in different places before coming together in high school. Nick moved from Calgary, Lazar from Toronto, and Tom from Korea. Now, I actually had the wonderful opportunity to sit down and meet with these guys, and I wanted to sort of write a feature article about them. And so I'll just give a bit of a snippet from that article, and then we can uh, discuss it and get into some more of their music here. So life and art are really inextricable. Life fuels art, providing inspiration and purpose to every stroke of a paintbrush and every word that is inked by an author. In the same vein, art offers a glimpse into one's reactions to his or her life experiences. They mirror each other, so it comes with no surprise that life progresses much like a novel, a painting, or a piece of theater through different acts. Childhood, adulthood, and senility are all remarkably different acts in our lives each with its own set of challenges and blessings. These are clearly defined stages which are marked by particular relics, childhood by action figures and dolls, adolescence by textbooks and minimum wage work, adulthood by tax filing and mortgage payments, and finally simility by retirement and pension collection. I would argue, however, that it is the moments in between, the often tumultuous transition periods, that are the most memorable and rewarding instances of our existence. Young adulthood, specifically, can be quite a confusing time. It comes with the promise of greater independence, but it simultaneously, and often unexpectedly, increases responsibility. It is a time of honest self-assessment and soul-searching. Ultimately, these years lay the foundation for the later years of self-sustenance. Some deal with the stressful time via escapism. Others take on a cold and brutish personality, interacting bluntly and rudely with the world out of self-defense for their fragile self-esteems. Others still combine these two approaches and take on a mentality of complete detachment and wage silent rebellion on the cruel world a la Holden Caulfield. Not everyone, however, is consumed by the Salinger-esque angst. There are some that choose to channel their insecurities and anxieties in meaningful ways. So, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with Collect Call, and these three individuals are some of these people that choose to translate these emotional wavelengths, whether they're joyous or depressed, into something meaningful and productive. Their sound has undoubtedly been influenced by their geography, as mentioned by Nick Bebe. White Rock, located in British Columbia, lies in the heart of the coniferous and white-capped landscape that is the Pacific Northwest. Mountain ranges on all sides, that is White Rock. Streams at every twist and turn, that is White Rock. Pine trees lining the streets, that is white rock. The setting has inspired collect call to create music that is very steely and acoustic. Sharp strings, handled by Lazar Todorovic, and are layered on top of very refined vocals, which are handled by Tom Lee. The percussion is very crisp, always sounding clear, and never lost in the sound, handled by Nick Bay. It is something between Bon, I- bon Iver on Emma, For Forever Ago and Coldplay on A Rush of Blood to the Head. But every so often the introspection is balanced out with tunes that you can dance to like on consequences which we just heard which features an infectious, infectious per- percussion build-up and staccato melody which accentuates tom's raspy vocals this light-hearted groove mixed with the emotional reflection blends together influences such as said the whale of mice and men and mumford and sons out of it all however comes something really organic a unique look into the personal lives and thoughts of three adventurous young adults. So that's part of the review that, or not the review, the feature article that I wrote about this uh, wonderful young band out of White Rock. Uh, if you'd like to read more about that, you can check it out on audiofrost.com. That's audiofrost.com. Audio as in sounds and frost as in it's going to get cold in the winter. So that that's basically what I've got. And uh, we're going to get into a bit more of their music here. This next track is titled Old Songs. It is, again, off of their debut album, Spring Constant. There's much more in store for this band. They're currently working on new music for um, the second half of this 2015, early 2016 year. So let's get right into it. This is Old Songs by Collect Call. Hi there are you tired of listening to this hi there are you tired of listening to the same music day in and day out and want to try something a little different well then how about listening to Asian music now I don't mean it like Style. nor like bass bass oh
2: baby she moves, she moves. I'm talking about a
1: little more like <laughs> and a little more
3: like
2: and also a little more like
1: and definitely something like So tune in to Asian Wave 101, playing you the best of Chinese and Korean pop, Wednesdays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m., only on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. Welcome back to The Arts Report, everyone tuning in. So, we've had a pretty exciting show so far, and we've got a lot more to cover still. Um, Andy, I understand that you recently saw a documentary entitled Everything Will Be, and uh, it was directed by Julia Kwan. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: so Everything Will Be is a feature documentary about Vancouver's Chinatown. It came out last year, 2014. It uh rescreened at the Van City Theater, I believe, last week, which I did not see. Mm-hmm. But it is on the National Film Board of Canada's website. You can rent it or download it for a, for a price. Of course. <laughs> of course, nothing <laughs> comes for free anymore. But yeah. Um, so the film follows like several characters over the course of it seems to be about a year. Um, and you revisit these characters uh, periodically. Uh, okay. But even in, in this very relatively small time frame, you know, businesses come and go, you know, buildings rise and fall. And the film touches on what Chinatown is today, what it once was and what it might become. So uh, what's special about the film, though, I think anyways, is that it isn't. Chinatown, as you know, it's not a ch- it's not Chinatown as tourist attraction. It's not uh, it's not chi- Chinatown of a hundred years ago during you know the head tax or whatever. It's the Chinatown of today, and the people who actually live there, as well as the people who are moving in. Now, uh, there's there's a kind of urgency in, in the film, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's like a pressing need to document Chinatown as it is right now. Because things that are right now might not be in a year or two or five. You know, Julia Kwan, from my understanding, um, started making this film to to d- kind of document the Chinatown of her youth, to compare it to to Richmond, which is where a lot of Chinese immigration is happening these days. Um, but the really startling thing about the film is, is that it's not really about nostalgia per se. You know, there's a version of this film that is... Uh, that demonizes gentrification. That that is is about condos killing the local flavor mm-hmm, and the specificity mm-hmm. of of Chinatown. But you know, to her credit, Kwan doesn't really go for that. You know, there's there's a bit of that there. You know, there's the figure of gentrification. Of course, is, is Bob Rennie, who well, he says he's not a developer in the film. He says he's a he's an advisor to developers, <laughs> right? He, he kind of haunts the film, but there is something that he says, which which I think is important, um, and it's that. The Chinatown of his youth, of of the of forty or fifty years ago, is already gone. You know, um, young people don't go to Chinatown anymore. I, I remember, you know, taking the twenty two bus down to Chinatown like a few years ago, and just being so surprised that you know all these you know hip coffee shops, these these hip restaurants that have probably had really nice reviews on Yelp, <laughs> like right next to these these places where I thought. Were, were, like I knew, right? Like yeah. right in the streets, like right next to like a regular grocer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to go to Chinatown probably quite often. My mom used to work there. She worked there for probably ten years um, as as a, as a waitress. She worked at Goldstone Bakery and later at Hans One Ton House. And one of the hip bars, the Kiefer the Kiefer Bar, is right next to Goldstone Bakery. I was like, oh, that's that's what that place is. You know, it's it's very. I think it's the closest thing that I've encountered to Freud's concept of, of the uncanny, <laughs> you know, something that's familiar, but, you know, kind of twisted and different in, in a really odd, odd way. Um, but, yeah, like, even as a kid, no one I knew lived in Chinatown, right? I knew one person, and he was the cousin of a cousin. <laughs> uh, I met him again at a wedding, my cousin's wedding, yeah, a f- uh, two years ago, probably. So, yeah, like... Even as a kid, like people went there to shop. People went there to meet friends, maybe. But no one I knew really wanted to live there. Yeah. And I think that remains to this day. Uh, the problem of Chinatown is, in a lot of ways, the the lack of youth. You know, The film focuses mainly on older residents right. yeah. who are 70, 80, 90 years old. The newspaper lady, that, there, there is one person I actually recognize from, from the documentary. She, she sells newspapers on, I think it's Pender Street. I recognize her because oh, my mom used to buy newspapers from that woman, mm-hmm. like for like a buck or whatever. And she, one of the ways that you can document, um, uh, how should I say this? Uh, the d- d- dwindling population was. She said during nine eleven, she sold all her newspapers by noon. You know, during the Hong Kong handover from the UK to China, she sold a thousand newspapers, and now she says she can probably maybe sell a hundred. You mm-hmm. know, like in a day. That's incredible to me. It's a dramatic change, even in 10 years. But these are people in the film who have been living in Chinatown since the 70s, since mm-hmm. the 80s, right? Yeah. And even though like, I'm, I'm 20, 21, turning 22 soon, Chinatown has changed so much in 10 years. Yeah. It's and
1: it's crazy that this is happening all before our very eyes, or the, the eyes yeah. of the sen- more senior um, members of our community, as recounted in this documentary by Julia Kwan. And it's not something that's in history textbooks. This not, is no. This is happening right now. This is now. Yeah. And I find it very interesting, fascinating how you mentioned that urgency that's found in the movie, that sense of urgency that, um, that Julia Kwan had to sort of capture what Chinatown is like right at the second, because with the speed of globalization and stuff like that and gentrification and stuff like that, how quickly things can change around us and I was just wondering, in your opinion, do you think it's necessarily bad that things are changing at this rapid of a pace? Or do you think that maybe this is just kind of, uh, it's not necessarily changing for the worse. In fact, maybe the sort of the spirit and the culture and the dynamic of Chinatowns being absorbed into the Vancouver kind of ethnic fabric <laughs> or cultural fabric as a whole.
2: Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of the new businesses, the businesses that have come in there, the bars, you know, the coffee shops. Yeah there is a kind of you know desire to capture or respect the culture that is already there mm-hmm. i guess what i'm maybe a bit suspicious of is what happens when you know all that's left is people that respect the culture but none of the original culture itself mm-hmm. that said um i it's hard to say because like i said very few people very few young people go to Chinatown anymore i wonder if the attitude that's reflected in a lot of the current residents that this is in some way inevitable is perhaps, you know that's that might be my my way of looking at it too. It it's hard. It's hard to see like part of my childhood kind of disappear a little bit. But on the other hand, what am I doing to stop it? To stop it. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's crazy how things are changing. But yeah. um this is this definitely sounds like a really interesting timepiece on no. uh the our uh, part of town that's so close to everyone that lives here. And such a even when you go down there now, like there's there's still an energy, there's still a feel about that place. And I, right, yeah, yeah, like you go to the places nearby. I don't know, for example, Fortune Sound Nightclub. It's Mm, right right beside Chinatown. Yeah, and there's there's just outside that, just on the streets, there's some kind of energy. And I think I think that it's an incredible thing that uh, Miss Julia Kwan tried to capture.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, And one more thing, I guess would be. It, one of the central figures of the film is, is the, this artist who who has enough rent to pay for one year. He has like a studio mm-hmm. and just one minute there's like a shop next to him and it closes for the holidays and it never reopens. There's <laughs> like kids there and then it's just gone.
1: And then it's just it's gone. In a flash. It's just amazing. like that. Well, thanks for talking a little bit about that. Uh, that documentary is called Everything Will Be. It is directed by Miss Julia Kwan, and where can uh, people check it out?
2: Yeah, it's on, if you just Google it, it you should find it. It's uh, on the National Film Board of Canada's website. You can buy it for like $15, or you can just rent it for like 3 bucks and change. Okay, yeah.
1: sounds good. So that, again, that's Everything Will Be, and it's directed by Julia Kwan. Just uh, a piece covering the sort of, Changing Dynamic and Atmosphere and Environment of the Chinatown in Vancouver. And uh, now we'll get into um, events that are upcoming around the city. So summer's winding down. Summer's flown by, hasn't it? It's flown by incredibly quickly this year. Yeah, I, I feel like I say that every summer or at the end of every summer. <laughs> I know that summer's winding down when uh, the celebration of light starts happening. Yeah. That's when I start getting a little sad. I'm definitely excited for September and stuff, but... The summer months, the sunshine has just been incredible. Obviously, today it's a little bit more gloomy, but you know, it's it actually was, nice as well.
2: It was nice. Just a little bit of rain, just enough. Just to enough like to kind of feed the plants Just and to keep wet that your face. You know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, lots still happening. There's always lots <laughs> happening in the city. You just got to <laughs> know where to look. And uh, you can keep tuning into the Arts Report, and we'll keep you connected with all the exciting things that are going around town, happening around town. So, um, what is happening in the coming weeks. So um, from July 31st, which is, of course, uh, last week, all the way till August 9th, which I believe is uh, the end of this weekend, uh, what is going to be happening in West Vancouver's waterfront uh, between 14th and 17th Street is what is known as the Harmony Arts Festival. So the Harmony Arts Festival is presented by Odlum Brown Limited. And so it really just brings Jaws huge crowds from all over the place, from the Lower Mainland, from the island, from anywhere. And uh, it really delivers some top-notch arts and cultural uh, features, some events, lots of crowd interaction, lots of activities. So if you have some free time and you want to go see the beautiful scenic West Vancouver, definitely check out the Harmony Arts Festival on from July 31st all the way until August 9th. Uh, we also have Fen de Fiesta, uh, which Jake, who is currently on vacation, was talking about last week on last week's arts report. And so Fen de Fiesta is a concert that's coming to uh, Vancouver on August 9th as well. Um, it will be held at the Colch at 8 p.m. Uh, tickets are available through the Colch box office or online at FenDeFiestaLaFlamenco.com. And so this concert really wants to capture the heart and the soul of flamenco dancing as it is in 2015. Truly a one-of-a-kind event, so if you want to make, uh, make your way out to that, that's definitely going to be an incredible night full of dancing, loud, beautiful music, and uh, definitely check that out. Also, if you're looking for a place to go with your family, maybe with some friends, maybe take a special someone on a date go for a stroll, really see the Vancouver in all its glory, um, make sure to check out the free outdoor movies happening at Stanley Park. So on July 7th, they were showing Pitch Perfect. On July 14th, oh, they I showed... Love
2: pitch. I love Pitch Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: know, I, sh- I know I shouldn't, but I just, it I just, just love it. Guilty pleasures, guilty pleasures. Um, on July 14th, they had The Breakfast Club. On July 21st, they had Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade just some classics here. July 28th, uh, they were showing Greece. Uh, what day is it today? Today's August 5th. So yesterday, they were actually showing Top Gun. So that was definitely something worth checking out. Um, August 11th is the next screening, and they will be showing the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. August 18th is Jurassic Park, and I think that's actually going to be a really cool one to see in the middle of a huge park. Yeah, totally. Maybe a little scary, (laughs) because the screening starts, I believe, at 8pm, so it'll start to get dark just as the dinosaurs come out. So, uh, make sure to check that out. And I think the last screening for the summer will be held on August 25th. They're going to be showing a more contemporary movie, big blockbuster, Avengers Age of Ultron. So definitely check those out. And last but not least, on the upcoming board, on the upcoming board news decks, we have the J2 and Sneaker Box fashion show. Uh, J2 and Sneaker Box is a company based out of uh, Vancouver. Their central location is, I believe, at, in Metrotown, yeah. and they're sort of the go-to for uh, casual wear, street wear, ranging all the way up to more uh, classy, more sort of business casual type clothing. Um, they've got a great wide selection of to fit Everyone's sneaker needs. And so, what they will be doing is they are hosting their Fall Winter 15 um, fashion show and party. And that's going to be held at uh, Fortune Sound Nightclub. So, that's at 147 East Pender Street, right beside Chinatown, which we were just talking about. Doors are at 9 p.m. And the show starts at 10 30 p.m. sharp uh, with an after party in the special project space, which is the middle floor. This is a 19 plus event. Um, be sure to make it out. They're going to be showing uh, key looks for fall, winter 2015, featuring some uh, great partner brands such as uh, Billionaire Boys Club, published brand, I Love Ugly, Ransom Hold Co., Vans, Cheap Monday, Stussy, Converse, New Balances, Super Sunglasses. The list just goes on and on. So definitely check that out. That's happening Friday, August 14th. Um, make your way down to Fortune Sound Nightclub. So I think that's pretty much all we've got on this show, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I'm surprised we actually made it to the end, but here we are.
1: Here we are. We just didn't run out of anything to talk about. There's just so much happening, such an exciting time in this kind of thriving city. Lots of events, um, lots to look forward to. Like we mentioned, the art gallery being redesigned, reconstructed by 2021. Um, Yeah, we hope that you guys have an incredible week, an incredible weekend. And make sure to tune in uh, next week. From 5 to 6 on Wednesday, every Wednesday, we'll always be here to keep you guys connected and informed about what's going on in the city. Thank you for joining us on unceded Musqueam Territory here at uh, the Point Grey Campus, UBC.
2: CITR 101.9 on 9. FM. This Jake is returns next week.
1: Jake this returns next week. Hopefully we did a decent job holding it down for him.
2: Yeah, Email him at arts.citr.ca at to... Uh, To complain or
1: or praise. (laughs) Or praise. Probably praise. Hopefully praise. (laughs) Hopefully praise. And this is uh, Jacob. This is Andy. And we're signing off. Here is Seed by Collect Call to take you guys out. Have a good week.
3: There's a portrait drawn of you by an old man. Who doesn't know you I warned you To fear the darkness But you don't heed it Until you're haunted Oh Take my crown Oh Take
1: my pride. Next, we have sharing science for all your science needs and interests. Your
0: choices.